This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for Games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games. The hard part of selling your video game? Well, that's simply letting the community and players know it exists. That's particularly true if you're about to launch a new game and don't have an established brand yet. What's the solution? Well, it's creating your own dedicated online presence that lets you connect directly with players, gather signups for your email campaigns, and communicate things like updates about your game's development process or new features. You can build an online storefront, grow your community, run pre-orders and subscription programs, and generally bring in more long-term revenue by selling game keys, virtual goods, or bundles. Especially for indie developers, pre-orders are underutilized lifeline, but any size studio can benefit from them. That time block before the game is fully released, it's prime opportunity for building awareness and getting early stage pre-launch revenue, which can be critical for sustaining your project throughout the development cycle and helps you forecast your game's first year sales. Exola can help you accomplish this with Exola Game Sales. Want to know more about how to get started generating more revenue for your game? Visit exola.pro slash game sales or go to the link in the podcast description below. What's up, everybody? It's time for another Twig, uh, Twig197. It's uh, me, Ethan Levy, a gamer in residence at Cat Connect Ventures. And I'm here with uh, just one co-host today, Eric Seifert of uh, uh, Heracles and Mobile Dev Membo. How are you doing today, Eric? Yeah, dude. I don't know. Do we need to give backgrounds? Like, we're here every week, man. <laughs> uh, at least I am. You haven't been here in a long time. <laughs> I, I was here. I was here when you were out. I was in uh, two episodes recently. Uh, how convenient! Yeah. Well, you know, I think we've you don't want to always got, be shilling. You got some reckoning to, to. You got some reckoning to do here. You, you got some uh, some crypto meltdown to account for. I, uh, we we did a whole crypto meltdown thing. I got in a big fight with Chris and um, Mishka about it. it. Was fun. No, I know, I know. I'm just joking around. <laughs> I've got your, no. It's not your fault. It's, it's not your n- fault, Ethan. It actually is my fault. Uh, that's a secret that only the DOF audience knows. But uh, I have no crypto news this week, but I've got have a you, bunch. Have you had any experiences like that that ending scene in Goodwill Hunting where, uh, you know, Robin Williams, the, the psychiatrist, is telling uh, Matt Damon's character, it's not your fault. It's not your <laughs> fault. And you just break down. It's all my fault. I've been talking about my fault. Play to earn gaming for years it's all my fault yeah yeah exactly my uh my board members just love it when i come to them crying it's it's the highlight of their month they tell me (laughs) (laughs) all right 
So uh, to, just to, we should point out, sorry to keep interrupting you. Yeah. The rest of the crew is at Gamescom. So yeah, I think uh, they're drunk and or napping right now because they just had the Gamescom uh, Phoenix Games. I forget who else was involved in that party. But oh, uh, that, that was today. OK, yeah, that's that. That was the update is that Mishka is currently napping. So yeah, I think it right. must have been a good party. Well, that but he's napping after a party. That seems like a weird. He's not. He's sleeping. That's he's gone to bed. He's not napping. He's <laughs> like wake up. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I think they're going to record a special episode for us, uh, a special Eric Kress feature. Uh, what, did that, um, what do you think that means? That they're going to do like a. They're going to. I don't know. Eric's past. I I don't know. I'm hoping for Eric's spiciest takes. Uh, that. <laughs> would, I'm, yeah, but he doesn't he doesn't drink anymore, so you're not getting the uh the unfiltered uh, uh right. takes there. You're you're getting the uh the reserved uh moderated to well, as moderated <laughs> as Crest can get. I, I I but I he made it seem like they were doing some kind of like hero story. Like they were gonna they were gonna dig mm. into his past and which uh you know, that sounds maybe more interesting. Maybe that's darker, I think. <laughs> All right. Well, I can't wait to find out what we learn about our good friend Eric Kress from that special uh, Gamescom post-party, post-nap episode. But uh, in the meantime, I've got a bunch of uh, fun news stories. I think uh, our big stories are about Diablo 4's live service plans, as well as this uh, Aeonic acquisition of Xmox for almost $100 million. So I assume that is an ad tech play that we will uh, learn about soon. I had a bunch of short little news stories I wanted to get into um, since it's just the two of us. Um, the first one I'm going to start with is Rogue Game shifts to a four-day work week. Uh, this is from GameIndustry.biz, but they um, are made an article out of a post from uh, Matt Casmasina of Rogue Games, and I'll just read a little bit from that. Rogue is instituting a permanent four-day work week for all employees, every Friday off, no extra hours on other days. My hope is that from the outside looking in, it'll be immaterial. In fact, I'm betting it'll encourage higher productivity and greater focus from folks when they are on the job. Not that we're falling short of that now. Meanwhile, the extra day and a permanent three-day weekend is absolutely material to the lives of our employees. We're doing it for our people because life is too short and because quality of life is really damned important. So uh, this one was interesting to me uh, because I'm, you know, currently in incubation stage on something new. I'm working on the design of the company as well as its vision and business model. And the four-day work week is something very interesting. It's definitely become a trendy, a trendy benefit to attract and retain talent. Um, network, where uh, both Eric and I worked, Uh, I was there for seven years, and while I was there, they had uh, very low attrition, and I think part of that was due to a flexible, you know, we trust you, do your work hours policy, and a unlimited vacation, again, we trust you, make good choices policy, where I never felt guilty or stressed about the idea of scheduling a haircut or bringing my kids to uh, uh, to school or something like that, whereas I think... uh, Back when I was at EA, pre you know many years ago and pre-COVID, it felt um, much more of a core hours. We expect you in the building at your desk at certain times. So I think that thinking about how your uh, employees live a full life um, is very important to happiness and, and retention. 
And I'm just curious, Eric, since you've become an investor with, with Heracles Capital, like if you hear about four-day work weeks from people who are pitching you, um, does that factor into your equation either way? You know, um, what do you think of this as a um, part of company culture? Yeah, it's, that's a good question. So, um, I mean, I feel like I don't, there's no, uh, call it like employment parameter or culture parameter that would immediately like disqualify a company from receiving investment, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you could make the case for why that is really important and why that is, um, creates a competitive advantage through like hiring or, or, I don't know, just getting better work out of people. Yeah, I would entertain that. I think an early stage startup telling me that they want to work, they're going to work four days a week. I, I, I don't buy that. I don't think that's possible. Uh, you know, the reality is like an early stage startup is kind of like a 24 seven thing. Um, at least for the founders. I mean, you know, employees <laughs> know, but, but the CEO is, is going to be tethered to their work. I mean, I don't, and I don't want people to hear me, hear me say this and say I'm being toxic. That's not enforced by VCs or investors. They have no, uh, influence over that. That's just the way that, that CEOs approach the work in the early it, stages of building a startup, especially like when you're hiring and you're building the initial team. So it's just, I, I can't imagine that anybody would even pitch that. Now, if they were to say, you know, look, we're at a series A stage or we're at a series B stage or whatever. And like, yeah, we've decided that we've, we've got, we've got a stable organization and we think we're going to get the best out of people with a four day work week. And we're going to be able to hire even better people by offering that perk, then yeah, sure. But at the very earliest, like pre-seed, we're starting a company. And by the way, the culture, uh, it, you know, um, is predicated on a four day work week. I don't know. I just don't think anybody would ever pitch that. I can't, I can't imagine mm -hmm. anyone saying that because it wouldn't be true for the founders. That's just a reality. And like, again, this is not some requirement that's imposed by investors. That's just a reality of starting a business. It's going to take more than four days a week to get it going, to build a foundation <laughs> and to get momentum. That's not a requirement that's imposed. That's a requirement that's imposed on founders by themselves when they're building a company. Otherwise they probably just wouldn't go that path. Right. So like, I think my, my general sense is cause I was, I had this discussion, um, with uh, a company CEO that where I invested in the company, they're built, they're building, uh, like ad tech for web three. So I'm not totally, uh, you know, uh, uh, an enemy of, 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 of the web three space. Right. Uh, and I invested and I'm, I'm very excited about this company, but he was asking me like, what do you think about remote versus on site? And there's no rule there. There's no, there's no right answer. It's like, whatever is best for you. There's a lot of teams that work really, really, really well remotely. Right. And there's a lot of teams where the, the, the founding team, um, has never done that successfully and they want to have everybody on site. So like you're, you're establishing the culture from like that early stage, you decide. And, you know, you can always change your mind later on or you could be more flexible or whatever. You could do uh, flex uh, flex office hours. You could do three days on site or whatever. Um, but, you know, I think the reality with remote work is you do get you get a, just it's just true. Uh, it's definitionally true. You get access to a bigger pool of potential employees. Right. Yeah. And, and by nature of that, you probably get more people at the extreme ends. Right. That, uh, you know, on both sides that are available to be hired. Right. So there's an, there's an inherent advantage in doing that. But if you just can't work that way, like you, the founding team need to decide what, under what conditions do you work best? And, mm -hmm. you know, you can always change that later, but I, it's hard to imagine that I'd see a founding team 
pitching uh, pre-seed investment and saying, uh, yeah, we're going to work a four-day work week. Because I just know that's not possible. You won't be able to build, you won't be able to get the company started working four days a week. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been, what I've been thinking about a lot as I like imagine this fantasy company that I want to be a part of building is um, years ago um, playing Guitar Hero during the lunch break with my colleagues, going to lunch with my colleagues, right? Thinking, uh, playing board games after work, um, thinking about um, in this new remote first world, how um, disconnected you can feel to your colleagues, how transactional it can all feel when you're all in your homes all the time and how much uh, changing jobs can just feel like I stopped going to these Zoom meetings and I start going to these Zoom meetings and I was working with these strangers and now I'm working with these strangers. So like, I'm thinking about how can we in a remote first world um, bring camaraderie back um, to to the workplace. And part of that I think is uh, making time in the workday for shared experiences that used to be kind of outgrowth of uh, lunch breaks and who doesn't have a social life and is looking for nerd friends to play board games with. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I remember um, when I was at Digital Chocolate, like everyone played uh, FIFA and yeah. uh, I think NH- some NHL game after after work, or even like during work. And uh, everyone knew Miska because he had just this loud like sound that he made. Like, oy, 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 like whenever he missed a shot or something. <laughs> like every, It was like a running joke in the office. that We, had, we like, need to that bring was, that to the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A it was like this, this, this weird, uh, like, uh, I don't know, like a battle cry or something. But it was, it was, uh, it was just so recognizable as me. As me. Yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff is fun. And like, I, I feel like the work environments where I was like the most contented were when I had a strong, um, you know, I don't want, I don't want to say like, like non-work relationship, but social ties, but yeah, like I had, I had just a, a, a strong, like interpersonal connection with people that was the result of having spent time with them. That was, uh, not dedicated to just working. Right. And like where I think, you know, that's, that's, where that can go wrong is when that's all uh, encapsulated in, in alcohol consumption. Yeah, yeah. Right? I so I, don't, I think that's actually like a bad way to foster that is to like have a drinking culture or like yeah. a after work happy hour culture. I mean, that could be part of it, but that can't be the sole uh, manifestation of that. I think the best way is, yeah, like playing games at work. If you work in games, I think it makes sense to play games at work. And like, you know, maybe that's after, after hours, maybe that's during lunch, but maybe that's just, hey, you know what? I got a hole in my schedule. Uh, why don't we go play NBA Jam or like that's a bad example, yeah. but you know, let's go play some multiplayer game. Let's go play Mario Kart. Um, so, so, but yeah, I mean, I, and, and, and that's just, and that, like this, this could lead down a whole other rabbit hole about like, you know, remote work and, and, and what the, the pandemic wrought upon, you know, our working lives. But I, my sense is like, you know, if you've got this, um, ability to connect people interpersonally, like within the, you know, some kind of like, but, but it, within like a professional environment, right. Yeah. Where like there are behavioral norms that you're, you're expected to, to, um, to, to, to adapt to then in, in not just like drinking at a bar, uh, yeah. then, then that does make people more productive, uh, in their working hours. Right. Like, and it, it, it creates like empathy and it creates mutual understanding and it creates like an ability to sort of understand how people think and anticipate what they're going to do 
right? And like that just that just that just creates efficiencies. Um, and so I think that's like a really good thing. And so remote work doesn't allow for that. I mean, you could. I think there's ways. There's 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 structural ways of 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 facilitating that. But but it's never going to be as as natural or as organic as if you have like an office environment. Yeah, and I think the the point around alcohol and drinking culture is is really well made and and something I've actually been thinking about a lot. Like now that I'm uh, uh, way way out of college age, thinking like, well, why are all these conferences like opportunities for nerds to try and pretend like they're in frats and sororities again? Like that's actually that actually excludes a lot of people from those networking events. There are a lot of people who uh, don't prefer it, um, who don't like to drink, who don't like loud environments. Um, and it's like, why Why does every every social gathering is like, we need to have some poison to make us less anxious because we're anxious around each other because we're strangers. But like, I, I, I think that it um, is, as someone who's organized a lot of work happy hours and, and after hours drinking in, in my 20s, I'm thinking now, like, how do I uh, uh, promote com- camaraderie and getting to know each other and spending time together that's not all around uh, alcohol? Because I think yeah. that's actually, uh, there's as a business owner in, in today's day and age, there's actually a lot of dangers to having um, uh, a lot of uh, times where your employees are getting together yeah. drinking. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's something that I've just come to realize in the last like couple of years, probably in the absence of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, what a, what a toxic setting, right? Like what a risk, what a liability, right? Yeah. And I think if you've got companies investing in all these measures to, to make employees feel, uh, uh, safer and make employees feel like they have more agency and make employees feel like they're more respected, um, and more appreciated, um, from nine to five. Why would you then throw a bunch of people in a room with alcohol where you have no idea how some uh, some individuals are going to react, yeah. right? To it, given that given that stimulus, uh, and and I mean, you know, this is uh, you know, speaking of someone who's enjoyed my <laughs> more than my fair share of happy hours, uh, <laughs> you know, and 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 open bars at conferences and stuff. But like, you know, I'm older. Tautologically true. I'm older now than I was before, but yeah. uh, just, just I guess with age and with having a kid, like you just, I see conferences as like a good opportunity to get some sleep, right? Yeah, and, seriously. Um, and I don't want to go out, play to a bar Steam, with, yeah, yeah, like Steam with a bunch deck. of strangers, uh, and who some of some of which are you know intoxicated, uh, and 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 potentially create risks or uh, you know sort of liabilities for myself or just you know invite uh invite whatever invite any sort of uh any 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 of these sort of unpredictable uh outcomes that can happen when there's a lot of alcohol involved with the situation like and i think you know the problem is too it's like you have it's really hard to speak out against that and so if you're Mm -hmm. if you're almost like if 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 you're promoting it right as a company and saying hey we're gonna have this company event and there's gonna be a bunch of alcohol there and we don't know how, how who, if, if everybody's going to, you know, drink responsibly or drink, um, you know, uh, or, you know, drink a, a sort of um, a reasonable amount. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. It's an unpredictable right. environment. We don't know what's going to happen. There's, there's people that feel like they can't voice 
any sort of disapproval with that, right? Because they feel like, well, you know, I'd be bucking the trend. I don't want to like ruin the fun for everybody. And also it's a company event. There's kind of an expectation I'm supposed to be there. And so they just kind of have to suck it up, right? And like, it's, you know, it's, it's easy for me. Like, I don't know. It's just, I think it's, it's something that any company should really consider. Uh, you know, you, if you're invest, especially if you're investing a lot of time and money and resources into sort of other avenues of making people feel more comfortable, um, yeah. I, I think that totally gets undermined when you then say, okay, but after work, we're hosting this happy hour and I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen. This guy might not be able to control himself near alcohol and, mm. uh, he might drink too much and he might get aggressive or whatever. I don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. It's un it's unpredictable. Like that's, I feel like that's a, that's a, a um, a, a missed opportunity to like really create these, 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 uh, environments for people to like get to know each other and to, to make meaningful connections. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I second everything, and uh, if anyone would like to work with me uh, on on sponsoring for GDC, a chill times tea and board okay. game, alcohol free daytime party with calm soothing music, it's something I've thought about a lot. I think uh, there's a lot of people that they would prefer that to a loud, uh, drunk nightclub. Um, all right, uh, next next little news snippet. Dead Island 2's developer wants to make zombies fun again. So this is my one uh, Gamescom story for the week um, where Dead Island 2, after eight years of being MIA, has reemerged uh, with a new developer. And uh, I think there were some really interesting quotes um, in this Polygon article. Um, I'll read this one. A lot of uh, zombies, not just games, but franchises, especially in the last five to ten years, a lot of times the message is that the real enemy is humans. The real bad guy is other people. Hell is other people. Lead narrative designer uh, Aisha Khan, who goes by Khan professionally, told Polygon. She could easily be talking about The Walking Dead or The Last of Us. Zombies are becoming almost a backdrop, almost just a setting choice. This could be on the moon, but, but instead it's with zombies. We wanted to keep zombies as the enemy, as the visual, as the focus, as the gameplay always at the core, at the forefront. That's the focus of the game. So uh, make zombies great again. I love it. Uh, I'm, I'm rooting for this one to be good after such a troubled development history, and, and I hope they succeed. I hope they make zombies great again uh, because it's been eight years um, since the announcement, and it's had a lot of trouble and switch developers, and I hope it has a smooth landing and happy uh, players when it comes out finally. Anything uh, uh, to add? Yeah, no, I don't know. No thoughts. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, this one I, was really interesting. An actual financial detail on what some Game Pass deals look like. This is from Twisted Voxel that cooking simulator devs get 600k to go on Game Pass. Um, so I'll quote from the article. Originally released on Steam back in 2019, the game will now be added to the Xbox Game Pass catalog. The software giant made a one-time payment of $600,000 to cooking simulator creators in order to include it on the Game Pass. More than 700 copies of Cooking Simulator have been sold overall, uh, Big Cheese Studios claims. Additionally, they claim they've sold an additional 400,000 copies of various add-ons. So uh, to me, this, this sounds like a great deal for Big Cheese. They have a game that's uh, three years old that's already sold in 700,000 copies. Uh, and they're getting an added $600,000 of revenue from it uh, by bringing it to the Game Pass. It might revive awareness, get more people talking about it, get more people playing and streaming it. And so I know uh, we talk a lot about the negative impact of subscriptions and on, on the types of games that might be developed. 
Um, but I think that this shows how, uh, how it can be positive uh, having these options, the Game Pass, uh, PlayStation, uh, EA, well, EA Origin doesn't really uh, do other people's, but now Netflix Gaming and uh, Apple Arcade and uh, Epic Free Game Store giveaways. You know, I think there's, there's a lot of uh, venues um, for kind of single A, double A indie developers who make games of, you know, not massive ambition, but of, of a good size to get additional revenue. I, I mean, I think this is a, a great sign of, of what it can mean uh, to have a game go on one of these passes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good outcome. Like, for certain studios, I mean, I'm sure that's great. I, the, the, prob- the problem with, I mean, well, okay, so there's a couple ways to think about this. Like, one is, you know, just a, a Game Pass type, um, you know, uh, mechanic, which, where you take a game that was otherwise, you know, a, a viable standalone thing, and then you just make it free mm-hmm. or very cheap. Um, and then you always drive a ton of installs and that's, that's, I think that's, that's, to me, it's like a very clumsy way of doing freemium, mm-hmm. right? Like, and I think it makes sense for Xbox and it makes sense for PlayStation, right? Because, um, it, it's just a value add and they get the sub and it makes, you know, it makes the players really happy, but it's, it's a little bit hostile to developers, I think. And then there's like another, just given the fact that, you know, you can drive a ton of installs, but there's not the machinery to do a lot with them, right? So if you make it free or you make it very cheap, you're just going to get a a wave of installs that are like pretty low value that, um, you know, maybe drive, uh, now, now they they can drive awareness for like sequels, right? So if you had like a, you know, sequel and then you'd want the original one to go into Game Pass because you drive awareness and get a bunch of people interested in the sequel. But if you don't, it's not going to be a big revenue moment. You're giving away a lot of value. Um, and you, it's, there's no way to capture value out of this giant uh, torrent of new users for most games. Like, they haven't built up. There's not the infrastructure on yeah. Xbox yet to do, like, well, we'll have ads in that in the game when we do the um, when we do Game Pass because we'll get a bunch of new DAO and, and we'll be able to monetize them with ads or we'll be able to do cross-promo and all this stuff. Like, the, the, the platform's not really that welcome to that kind of stuff. The ads environment is too immature, um, and so it's just a, it's just a, it's just really like giving away your content, right? Now, I'd r- I'd rather see these platforms create the the frameworks for just being in control of your own destiny on them and being able to market them and to drive you know DAO growth sustainably, right? Yeah. In a very direct way. But absent that, yeah, Game Pass is probably okay. I'm more interested in, like, so this, so I think Game Pass is like this weird uh, middle ground between like fully embracing freemium um, and all of the ancillary, uh, all of, all of the sort of like ancillary sort of like business requirements that that entails, right? With like, okay, having a viable path for user acquisition, having a viable path for monetization, right? Which isn't just the purchase price, like, you know, giving, giving developers control over how they manage the user experience in their game and not, and not being uh, like very draconian about like the, the rules uh, that are applied to that. Um, This is just kind of like a weird middle ground. And if you think about like an Apple arcade type situation, that's, that's just straight up, uh, but you know, bundled subscription and 
I'd be more interested in knowing what the economics of that are because that's really just MGs paid out to developers. Plus there's some rev share component, but it's all very opaque. Yeah. Right. Like I, I think that if, you know, that seems to me like an interesting, good second place trophy, right. For a developer to say, look, try the game in the open ecosystem. If it doesn't work out, we'll give you some money. Take it over here to the sub uh, program. Well, I, right. I, I can't um, speak to the financial side of it. Um, uh, doing Tetris Arcade with with Apple uh, Tetris Beat with Apple Arcade was a really positive experience for me um, mm-hmm. and the other developers because we got to build a very fun experimental music based version of Tetris with custom tracks from real musicians, um, and that's something that. You know, me and Lawrence, Lawrence was the, the lead EP on it. Um, we're both big electronic music fans. We got to do something that was really fun for us and kind of a guaranteed profit for the company. And even if it, and it was the sort of project we prob, we wouldn't have normally pursued. You know, we never would have released a premium Tetris game mm-hmm. um, at a VC funded startup g- given the, the dynamics there. But, um, you know, it was a really great opportunity to make something we wanted to make, have fun, and bring something that wasn't going to be a, a massive free-to-play, you know, hundred million a dollar a year revenue generator out, out into the public. So it was, it it was a good way, you know, f- financially great for the company, and it was uh, uh, fulfilling for us as creators. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I mean. I'm sure that's great. I, I just, I think I'd, I'd be more interested in knowing the economics of like, and I'm not asking you to tell me, but like that, that feels like, I don't know if, if I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go this middle ground. I'd go all or nothing, create the freemium open, uh, create, create the freemium open market. Right. And then mm-hmm. have a premium, uh, uh, have a, pre- have a premium environment within that, that you sponsor and that you, you know, you own the economics of, right. That feels like you're 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 managing sort of both models versus like Game Pass seems like a very much like a uh, a middle ground that probably doesn't benefit developers in the mm. same way that actually fostering an open freemium economy, but then having this kind of like premium destination where you could actually you know lay out like pretty decent amounts of cash to really incentivize developers um if they didn't want to build a a freemium game or the freemium game didn't work but it worked better as a premium game having that as like a destination that feels like and 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 especially to, to, to sort of incentivize like indie developers to develop for that platform that feels like a better um approach now i know there's a lot of especially crest has a lot of very strong opinions about apple arcade and, and, and I mean, as a, as a, as a commercial like solution, um, to a problem I, th- that specifically, I'm not so sure about, but I think that general approach of like, yeah, actually this, 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 um, games ecosystem is a freemium games ecosystem, but we do have a premium destination. If you want to build a premium game, you're not going to get lost in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. We have a place that you can develop for. Now, obviously, you know, you, there's a, there's a gatekeeping aspect to that. You've got to be accepted. They're not letting anybody publish. To, they're not giving out, you know like significant MGs to just anybody, but you can pitch us, you can make the case. If you're a well-known developer, you've got a track record or you've got a game in the app store now and you want to convert it to premium. Um, then, then there's a destination for you, right? Where you don't necessarily have to just be competing with freemium games on the freemium model terms with a more premium product. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, next next news story. This one is kind of a popcorn, a fun one, uh, which was Outlander's Sam Hewen circling Sony PlayStation feature Days Gone, Sheldon Turning Adapting. Sheldon Turner Adapting. This is from Deadline. So uh, I love Outlander. I love Sam Hewen. I think it's a great show, and he's a, a charismatic actor. Um, and I just found this really interesting. I'll, I'll tell you why. So... Um, the quote from the article is, The Ben Studios created game, which has sold 9 million units, is set in the Pacific Northwest after a devastating global pandemic. So why I think this is interesting is it's uh, a game that has a lot of awareness. They did a lot of marketing. They sold 9 million units. They're making a feature film of, or at least trying to, and, and we know from Uncharted that, that uh, just because these things are announced, it might be a decade or more yeah. of ups and downs before it comes to the screen or the streaming platforms. But these feel like signs of a uh, growing franchise worth investing in, making a sequel of, and we already know that they've nixed plans for a Days Gone sequel. So it's like, uh, I get the, the bar is just really high uh, to, to uh, franchise uh, something yeah. uh, over at first party, I guess. You, you played Days Gone, right? You loved it. Yeah, I, I played it during COVID. I really enjoyed it. It was a good game. Um... I think it's probably hard to make sequels for those narrative-driven open-world games because I can't imagine how expensive it is to develop that. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I don't know. It was a good game. I but I yeah, it wasn't it wasn't like a blowout hit as a, as right. a game. Um, it got a little repetitive too. It got it got it did get a little bit repetitive. And like the most fun part of the game was like you would take on these hordes of zombies, mm-hmm. and there's like three of those, and so you're always like, and that, and that only really came into the game like you know, 60% of the way through. And so you're always kind of just, okay, I'm going to slog through the narrative part to get to my next horde uh, interaction. But, um, you know, it's funny because if you look at the development of like a lot of these movies, I was reading about Gray Man. I just watched Gray Man on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And that movie had been in like development hell for like years and years and years. It was originally written with like Brad Pitt, or I think Brad Pitt was originally like associated with it or attached mm-hmm. to it as like the lead. And and then, he, you know, like after like eight years of just sitting on someone's desk, they, you know, kind of re- resuscitated it. And then they got, um, what's his name? Uh, it's Chris uh, Evans. Chris and Evans and um, Ryan something. Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling. Um, anyway, it's just, but that movie Russo was just. Brothers. Yeah, that's right. Um, but that movie was just sitting around on someone's desk for like years and years. So I, I don't know. Whenever you hear about a movie being like right. uh, pitched, it's like, well, okay, who knows when we'll see that. Yeah. This, this type of article might be an attempt to make something real and, and get people, you know, on board, uh, make it less shaky. Yeah. All right. Um, this one is a very big, uh, interesting uh, Hollywood-adjacent announcement, which was that Embracer Group to acquire the Lord of the Rings IP, Tripwire, Limited Run, and more. Um, so they uh, announced $576 million worth of acquisitions, including acquiring Mid- Middle Earth Enterprises, um, as well as uh, uh, if you're a super nerd like me, you probably own a couple limited run games games, uh, which I've got some of on my bookshelf. But um, so from from the article. Uh, on games industry. Embracer said the acquisition was in line with its IP-driven transmedia strategy and expressed interest in exploring additional movies based on iconic characters such as Gandalf, Aragon, Gollum, Galadriel, Eowyn, and other characters from the literary works of J.R.R. Tolkien, 
and continue to provide new opportunities for fans to explore the fictive world through merchandising and other experiences. So Embracer is much more than just a game uh, studio uh, uh, or a collection of game studios. They are a transmedia uh, play uh, across games, uh, digital games, now board games with Asmodee, which I think they um, might have rebranded, and now movies and, and TV intellectual property and owning Lord of the Rings and the Hobbits rights. And I just like, seriously, where, where do they get all the money, right? They've done $576 million for this bundle, right? That also includes, uh, they acquired Tripwire, the, the mm-hmm. Killing Floor and Maneater creators uh, out in Atlanta. They announced, you know, they did $300 million for Crystal Dynamics, Eidos and Square Montreal. They did Gearbox for $1.3 billion. And they just like every quarter, it feels like they have like five or six studios they've acquired. And this has just grown into a huge transmedia behemoth. Part of me wonders where all the money comes from. Um, uh, Crest probably understands and knows uh, better than I. And I would just love to know what it's like trying to Voltron all these companies together. Uh, I might try and get someone from Embracer to just come talk about how they manage it. Uh, I'm so curious about what it's like, kind of like the Embracer Central uh, studio, whatever whatever that central management structure is that um, that helps all these elements, all these new companies onboard and, and work together. Yeah. I don't know. I always get worried when gaming companies try to call themselves media companies. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that works. I don't, I don't, it's just a very different sensibility, very different business model. Um, I, Good luck. I mean, that sound. This is a this is a huge acquisition. Yeah. I also, you know, they they are very active. I'm impressed. I'm impressed by the pace of the deal making. Um, they're deploying a lot of money. Uh, so good luck. I hope this works out. I mean, this is a this is a monster IP to acquire. So yeah, yeah I hope uh, uh, more games of the quality of Shadow of Mordor. Those are uh, some of my favorite games uh, of the past decade, probably. Mm. So uh, if, if you can do more like that with Lord of the Rings, I would be a very happy player. All right, do you want to tell us about... Uh, uh, this This sounds almost like it was generated by AI. Aonic acquires Xbox yeah. for almost $100 million. Like, those are AI-generated startup names. Yeah, I so this is... I, so I bring this up because this is a big exit. So Xbox has been around for a while. Um, kind of... Uh, uh, it, you know, it's like a, they, they've called themselves a, uh, an agency. Um, they, uh, they've been around for a long time. Um, they, they have, you know, ad, they have proprietary ad tech, great, great outcome for them. It's a big, big exit. Uh, Aonic though, I didn't know anything about them. So I kind of digging into this and that's probably just me not, you know, not, not following I ha- it. I haven't of heard of them either, but it's a really interesting company. So Aonic is kind of like a roll-up vehicle, it seems like. Um, so I guess Aonic Group established a gaming group earlier this year, and in, had you know, and when they did that, they they said that they had the intention to commit over 100 million into this venture. Um, it also invested 35 million dollars in a VR studio called Endreams. Um, and now they've bought ad tech. Uh, so I, I, 
would love to learn more about Aonic. I guess I bring this up just to invite anyone from Aonic to to, to uh, educate me about the company and what it does. Because I, I don't think I'd heard about it before this deal um, took place, which I think was like last week. So anyway, it's just, it's it seems like a, a very, very interesting company. It, I guess it's like a holding, co- I guess it's um, kind of similar to like an Embracer group. It's like a holding company that acquires studios, acquires... Um, tech and just sort of makes the centralized tech available to the studios. It, that's, that seems like what the, what the proposition is with this acquisition of Xbox. But anyway, I would love to learn more. It sounds really interesting. Yeah. I guess like if you're acquiring and uh, investing in a VR studio and acquiring an um, ad tech platform, I kind of wonder what your thesis or what your cohesive justification sure. for having that. Those are two very disparate, um, yeah. types of uh, investments and I don't think you know similar to the comments you were making about selling games on, on the consoles um, and even on Steam you know I don't know if you can uh, make how do you leverage that ad tech to help sell uh, uh, VR games right right yeah you can't you can't so Interesting. Uh, yeah, if you're uh, you're from Aonic or you know, uh, reach out. We'd we'd love to uh, talk more and, and learn about you. All right, Th- this one uh, was was really interesting. I th- I think this was um, this is kind of my highlight story for the week, which is the uh, Diablo Four live service plans were detailed in their quarterly report. So over on the Diablo Four blog, we're getting substantial details about the game's live service ambitions. Uh, they sound very ambitious, like they're going to be large team uh, undertakings. They sound very familiar, and they are surely going to be a massive success for the company. It's clear they're working to differentiate from uh, Diablo Immortal and make it clear that there's no pay for power or pay for progression in Diablo 4. And it's really amazing to think of how far the free-to-play and live services business model has comes has has come in terms of uh, hardcore gaming acceptance uh, as you read these plans for um, Diablo 4 and, and picture the revenue smashing headlines that are sure to come after its uh, release. So um, I'm, I'm going to go through some of the most interesting bits and, and some commentary along the way. Uh, so here's a quote. Diablo 4 seasons are modeled after those of Diablo 3. When a new season begins, all the characters from the prior season are moved to Eternal Realm where you can keep playing, leveling up, collecting loot. To play in the new season, you'll create a fresh character and experience the new seasonal features and content while leveling up alongside other players. This, along with capping Paragon points in Diablo 4, ensure that your effort and skill, measured by both dexterity and theory crafting, determine how powerful your character becomes. It also allows players who missed the last season to participate. Um, so seasons are quarterly. Uh, they feature a full reset uh, and give gives players a regular entry point um, so that every quarter it makes it easier to jump in, even if it's year four, year five. You know, I expect this game probably to be going for a decade or more. Um, this is one of those barriers that keeps me away from multiplayer games and live service games. Like uh, if I joined uh, COD, uh, any COD game right now, I'd, I'd probably get destroyed if I joined, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, Warframe right now, you know, however many years in. Um, so um, it, 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 this seasonal reset, even if you're not selling characters the way you might in a free-to-play gotcha game, like it, uh, it 
uh, it lets you uh, experience different content, experiment, take risks. And really the beginning of the character journey is often the most fulfilling part in my experience, right? I think uh, I often think of MOBAs each time I play one as that they really lean into this on a per session basis. Each match takes you through the full character leveling experience. And it's not as deep and fulfilling as a Diablo game or, or a Borderlands game in terms of character progression, but but really the, the joy is very front-loaded. Um, I'm experiencing that right now as I kind of redo a, a full Mass Effect playthrough. Like it's really fun leveling at the beginning of the game and looking at the trees and trying to strategize and figure out what's the right investment for your player. So uh, this sort of seasonal reset uh, sounds like a lot of fun and it's a great way to keep uh, 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 veteran players engaged and given on ramp for new players. Another quote, each season will be released with fresh new gameplay features and quest line that includes new challenges, mysteries, and the possibilities into the level up experience. This is something players should begin to experience before the end of the first hour of play. We'll also be constantly adding new legendary and unique items, paragon boards, glyphs, and more. So um, I think that uh, they, they want to keep things fresh each season. Uh, uh, make the character progression, change it up, make it kind of a mystery box of, of how to build the most OP uh, build before time runs out. And it does sound like they'll probably have a very massive uh, MMO-sized uh, content team to keep up with all this content and cosmetic updates. Um, and then just one more uh, quote section. Uh, Diablo 4 will be a full-price game with a cosmetic shop and season pass none of which provide any pay-for-power options. Our goal in designing our game purchases is that we want to create beautiful things which add value to a player's experience. The best-looking cosmetics aren't exclusive to the shop. Um, the shop offers more diversity of choices, not s systematically better choices. So it's pure cosmetics uh, from virtual currency in a shop as well as a premium side of their battle pass or their season pass. Um and, and I think the thing, it's, it's going to deliver a lot of revenue. And the thing for devs to recognize is that it requires a massive audience to deliver revenue uh, that supports these live ops plans. Um, and already from the success of Diablo Immortal and the similar structure of Fortnite, I would predict a, a big financial success. So um, one, one of the things I just wanted to talk about when I read through all this, other than that it sounds like a lot of fun to play and... Um, Probably when it's released, uh, I'll, I'll curse the day I, I turned down the chance to be part of Diablo 4's Lives Op and Monetization uh, 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 org. Um, I know I'll be delighted as a player and kind of jealous as a dev, but um, a, a decade ago when I was a, a monetization consultant, I would frequently get hired by people who had a pure cosmetics approach, and they would say, it's what Riot does, it's fair for the player, and, and I expect if I was doing it now, they would say, it's what Fortnite and Diablo do. And the thing I think you have to recognize is that these games have huge, massively invested player bases, strong retention from the multiplayer community, and bring in a lot of organics uh, because of the brand in, in the multiplayer. Um, so relative to uh, a mid-core game and mid-core CCG or an MMO RTS, um, they probably have a very low percentage of the, a relatively low percentage of the audience's payers, and then paying a relatively low amount compared to those free to play uh, mid core games. 
uh, but they have massive audiences and huge retention. And that's what allows them to, you know, they're going to need to hire a massive amount of developers to produce, you know, basically a new expansion every quarter and keep things fresh with in-game weekly uh, events and, and season pass content. Um, and it's just, you know, I, I'm sure you've had similar experience. I think it's it's hard to run performance marketing against a pure cosmetics economy unless you're truly cream of the crop in terms of retention, uh, organics, and, and monetization. So this approach will definitely work for Blizzard and for Diablo 4, um, but it probably won't work for, you know, four-person, ten-person indie teams uh, to be pure cosmetics or even 40 person teams you know it's no. it's a tough it's a tough nut to crack and it requires really uh, best in class metrics to pull off pure cosmetics monetization yeah yeah no i agree it's tough um you just can't go deep enough right you can't you can't support that long tail of user of player ltv with kind of cosmetics right like even if there's because it's just it you the 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 consumption like so the consumption of uh paid resources in the game has to be supported by some kind of meta loop right which in a lot of cases is like a live ops loop that's driven by like tournaments or just competition right mm -hmm. and that's never going to be the case with cosmetics right that's just never going to drive enough monetization because you're not, you don't need to do that, right? Every every single week, right? There's not a regular consumption habit, right? Like that that mm -hmm. you enter into with cosmetics. It just you just don't, you just can't. That's not the use case for that, right? It's like one and done, or it's a regular, but you'll never build up enough of a necessity for it as a function of gameplay, right? Because this sounds bad. But it doesn't sound bad, but it just it's it sounds transactional, but it's not. Like I mean, this is just a high level, quick. Uh, overview but like what you need to do with these systems you have to build the gameplay leads the transaction right mm -hmm. your it's not pay to play it's uh it's pay to hobby or it's pay to to it's it's uh it's it's pay to to enjoy right the right. people that get really deep into the competitive aspect of these games they 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 love it it's a big part of their life Right now, I pay a, a regular monthly subscription to HBO Max. Right, like they see it the same way. This is uh, stakes for me being at the highest level of competition, or or for me being um, a contender. Right, and like I, in, in in a way that's acceptable to me, in a time commitment that's acceptable to me. Right, relative to then having to like grind through everything every week. Right, and so you can't do that with cosmetics. You're not going to get that same motivation. Because the people that get truly like uh, ensconced in this and the people that really take a lot of value out of it and like feel like, hey, I'm getting a steal. This is a bargain. I'm paying a couple bucks a week and I've got all my buddies and I've got this, 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 this uh, source of joy in my life. Um, it's a bargain for what they're paying, right? Um, so the value exchange is, 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 is very favorable to the player. But like you're not going to get that with cosmetics. It has to be something that entertains that sort of uh, competitive sensibility. And cosmetics just don't do that. It, and, 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 and you, you see – and like, I think the problem is you see games where they do, right? Like Fortnite, right? Mm -hmm. Like, well, skins drive you – know, well, I think people look at that and superficially determine that, like, well, skins drive the economy there. And that game's huge. Well, yeah, okay, but A, it's a cultural phenomenon. B, they have the battle pass, so it's not really just the skin sales, right? 
um, you know, and, and, and that the skin sales are just probably, I mean, who knows what percentage of the total, you know, overall revenue they make up, but like it, that's not the, the heart, that's not the beating heart of the economy, that game. It just feels that way. Cause it's the most obvious thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like similar with like probably call of duty, like people like, Oh, there's all these new skins all the time. Um, that's not what's driving the economy of the game. It's the game pass. It's the yeah. battle pass and it's, it's buying, uh, it, buying progress in call of duty and it's buying, uh, uh, it's buying uh, specific uh, loadouts, right? And and here in Diablo Four, it's going to be the season pass going to be the big driver of revenue and kind of a right. you know it's almost like a quarterly subscription um, that's optional. And so you know when we were both kind of freelancer consultants in monetization, we worked on different the different sides of of the monetization equation. I worked on what do you sell in game, and you you worked on um, how do you drive players to a game profitably. And I think a, a lot of devs um, are fans of Fortnite and League of Legends and, and Diablo, and, and they want to follow a similar path uh, because it's what they enjoy most as players. And, and I'd say, I mean, it's just, um, it's not impossible. You need really great long-term retention and really great organics um, uh, That because it's hard to scale these games profitably you know, from your expertise with, with, uh, performance marketing, right. Um, do the fundamentals. So, yeah. And, and that's, that's the key here. It's like, you're looking at Diablo Well, there's right. a brand there, there's a legacy there. It's a well-known game franchise. You know, if you're talking about, um, call of duty, it's the same now Fortnite, they didn't have that, right. uh, but they had the power of Epic, right. Yeah. To, to get, you know, the, that sort of like initial adoption, um, and drive that forward. But like, I think because it's like, it's an interesting point, um, you know, talking about the sep- the, the separate perspectives on this and the thing with, with, you know, the work that I used to do with like studios around, like helping them with, um, just like kind of just general, like UA strategy and growth strategy. It's like, well, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter to me how you achieve this, but this is the level of monetization you must achieve right. in order to grow this game. Now do, if you can do it through, uh, the thing is, if you can do it through cosmetics, well, that probably assumes there's some sort of factor that is reducing your CAC, right? Yeah. And like, if that's the case, then that's the case. That's fine. And, and there actually may be a brand association there that prevents you from having a deeper IAP-based economy, right? Yeah. And if it works out, then it works out. I don't really care. I'm pretty indifferent, right? But like when I did see an inability to get there, to, 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 to shrink that uh, delta between the LTV and the CAC. It was always because the economy was too superficial. It was like, look, you've got to build more meat here. You've yeah. got to build something that creates that long tail of LTV that gets the average value to be, or the, the, the value of these cohorts to be enough to pay back the, the acquisition costs. Like do whatever you need to do to get there, but it's probably going to require some kind of like deeper economy and not uh, some, just like a, a, a kind of cosmetic marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let me just so we're almost at the end here. I got. I want to rant real quickly because we, we were talking about the Cress uh, origin story <laughs> podcast that's being recorded right now. We're going back to childhood. We're going to get the whole uh, backstory on Cress um, and the, the decisions that he made and the path that he took uh, to become the person he is today. <laughs> One thing that pissed me off about the new Batman movie was they invent like this is a well. This is like this. This is canon. The Batman origin story is canon. Everyone knows what it is, right? And you can't 
rewrite it. And in the Batman, all of a sudden, Bruce Wayne's father paid off some guy to whack some other guy. And it turned out he didn't want him to whack him. He just wanted him to, like, scare him a little bit. And, oh, geez, turns out he was a really bad guy. And he was running for a mayor. And it's like, this is just made up shit. This, didn't, this doesn't exist. Now, I, I might be missing there's some thread in some in, in one of the, um, the comic books. But I don't think so. I think they just made this up. Uh, I, well, I don't know. I, I do. I have read a fair amount of Batman. Uh, I, not, not recently, but you know, I, I think, uh, uh, to me as a longtime comics fan, comic book heroes are more like mythological creatures or biblical creatures in a way like they're, they're open to reinterpretation, retelling of their stories in new and different ways. That's, you know, Marvel and DC reboot their characters all the time. So, yeah. Well, yeah, but they explain it away with, well, there's just different universes. Right. They're in Earth 676, not Earth 678. Right. Where Superman is is really Super Snake. Exactly. But this is just, well, we're, you know, we're going to take another stab at this. (laughs) I'm not really happy with the way that the Bruce Wayne origin story, uh, you know, has has evolved. And so I'm going to just, you know, I'm just going to make up a new one. That's I, that you can't do that. You can't do that. It's canon. <laughs> Counter counterpoint is that Batman Year One is like one of the the Frank Miller graphic novel is one of the greatest graphic novels ever, and that was uh, someone taking uh, bringing a new interpretation of of the Batman origin story or telling a part of it that uh, we haven't seen before, and and that influenced the Nolan ones. So I don't know. Doesn't doesn't bother I me. I just that'd be like saying, you know what? Uh, no, Samson just gave the baby to to somebody. Right. You know what I mean? Like, no, we're, that's not the story. That's just the whole story. The whole point of it is, you know, he splits the baby down the middle, and of course you're not going to do that. So, like, you know, Solomon, just, Solomon, 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 Solomon. Solomon. <laughs> uh, yeah, Solomon. Sorry, but um, anyway, it's just like you can't just re, you can't just recast these stories, and and uh, especially to especially. I, you know what? I wouldn't have as much of a problem with it if that would, had been a better movie, but not for a <laughs> not for a not for a mediocre remake. You know what I mean? If that had been like a you know just a, just an absolute like masterpiece of a guy, okay, fine, that's fine. This is the new canon. But you know, you're talking like it's like uh, you know it'd be like if they uh, if if in the uh, Jar Jar Binks Star Wars movies they had. Uh, like redefined who Darth Vader was or something. You know what I mean? Like they had totally altered it, the story. Like be, you'd be annoyed. It would be almost as if they invented some kind of new space bacteria that explained the coolest part of their mo- universe that they should have left a mystery and how disappointing that would be. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, that's my rant. That's my, Someone had to rant. If Crest is gone, someone had to rant. All right. All right. Well, there we go. Let us know. Uh, uh, jo- join us in the Deconstructor Fun Slack. Let us know all your thoughts about the Batman. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. Eric, this care. was a fun one. Yeah. Take care. See ya. Take care. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode. If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, do remember, 
We love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time.